You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Thursday, September 27th, 2007, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Rebecca Watson. Hello, everybody. Jay Novella. Hello, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Bob has the night off. He is busy getting his haunted maze, corn maze, ready for Halloween. Fright night. (laughs) Fright month for Bob. It runs out the whole month of October. So he's obviously scrambling to get last-minute stuff ready. Well, he's been working on it. They, They work on it for at least four months in. Oh, yeah, he was in the summertime putting yeah. this together. Yeah. He's insane. I mean, <laughs> well, well, we all know that, yeah. Now, come on, yeah. guys, honestly, this year, it's beyond kick-ass. We actually built a haunted house, so it's, it's kick-ass. That's very cool. Maybe we should do a show from the haunted house. That would be interesting. That would be kind of funny. Yeah, that would be cool. All, all that screaming in the background. So, Rebecca, you have some big news for us tonight? Oh, wait, yeah, I'm so wait, glad you mentioned wait, this because I always forgot. What? <laughs> I won the NPR Public Radio Talent Quest. Yeah! Congratulations. Thank you. High Uh, fives all around. Yeah, I was... (laughs) (laughs) I was one of the three of the the remaining five people who have won $10,000 and the uh, additional resources we need to create a pilot episode of a show. We will create the pilot by December, pitch it to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and if all goes well, then they will decide to throw money at me to continue making shows, which will, of course, have a skeptical bent to them. Good. Awesome. Better you than Bill Moyers. Take it out of <laughs> yes, this box. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> now, yeah, there's a weird, there's a weird uh, little magic thing attached to this. I actually predicted this. Did you? I did. <laughs> you okay. are you going to win a million dollars off of this? No, but I did tell you from the very beginning. I, I if I if you were in the room with me, I would be looking you dead in the eye. But I did say you say to you very matter of factly, Rebecca, you're going to win this. You did you did say that, and I, I have to say that the reason why I won is due entirely to you guys and to the listeners of the podcast here. The readers of the blog, I won by popular vote. And if I hadn't have won the popular vote, I do not think that I would have won. So mm-hmm. it, it was huge. You guys, they were telling me the results um, the other day to let me know I had won. And they said, they, they told me that I drove so much traffic to the site that if they do it again next year, they want me to do their, their public relations. Because <laughs> nice. <laughs> You're doing <laughs> something right. The skeptics were basically running that website for the last three months or I know, but Rebecca, ago. yeah, it is definitely in part due to our audience and all that. But, you know, honestly, you have a lot of cred, you know, like it's you. Yeah, if you didn't have the chops, you wouldn't be there, right? Thanks. Well, I'm, I'm pretty excited. I can't wait to get going on the pilot and I know more exciting things to come I'm sure I'll keep everybody updated as that goes along yeah so. it's exciting Very it's going to cool. be cool as hell come on always more and better things yep that's yeah. right and we're there to help yeah it's always good to know another famous person you know <laughs> <laughs> well and of course I'm I do p- plan on sticking with uh, the skeptics guide you better yeah right <laughs> well, well, I mean, we'll, have what to, the heck? we'll have to we, find you We've had Hunt some listeners down. express concerns, but no. I hey, we know no where you live. Plans to leave. That's true. 
But Rebecca, you know, look, if you get too famous, you're going to have to move on, of course, but we'll be kicking and screaming at your door. No, no, no. If I get too famous, I'll be dragging you guys along with me. You'll All right, be that sounds good. riding packing, my coattails. <laughs> packing my bags. I, w- I will absolutely become part of your entourage. Excellent. <laughs> it's going to happen. Do I have to call you Miss Watson? Uh, you do anyway, don't you? Oh, that's right, Miss Watson. I forgot. Miss <laughs> Watson. <laughs> Just, well, congratulations again, Rebecca. That's wonderful news. A quick plug. I was on the Line One radio show out of Alaska a couple days Alaska ago. Alaska has radio shows? <laughs> apparently. Apparently, yeah, that, yeah. That's why the moose grow the big antennas. You know, the big antennas. <laughs> oh, the so pick up. <laughs> Guys, my wife is from Alaska, so retract all that. Steve, please don't put that in the show. <laughs> I, I'll edit it all out, Jay. That's worry. right. There are no moose in Alaska. Honey, don't worry. They're, the they're just joking. Is it, is it mooses or meese? It's meese. What's, <laughs> it's it's mucilix. <laughs> Oh, and wait, there was a radio station on Northern Exposure. So, never mind. That's true. So, you're right. So, they must have one. That was ham radio. I saw it on TV, so it must be true. Very very quickly, this is a listener, Thad Woodward, who's a doctor who who runs a medically-oriented news show in Alaska called Line One, and he's very skeptical. He gave me an incredibly softball interview. I mean, he really knew where my sweet spot was, asked me just like, Totally set up skeptical questions, but it was great. It was a good. It was a good talk. It was an hour long show. We had a good time. So thanks, Dad. Cool, Steve. I can't wait to hear it. Well, I think it was live. I don't know if it's recorded. Oh, uh, there's no. There's something on. <laughs> it's out in outer space right now. You have to go get it there. Oh, never mind then. The uh, the first news item is an acupuncture study. Now we had uh, a ton of email on this, so this this uh, was definitely making the rounds. And I, I get a lot of questions about acupuncture. That's one of those alternative modalities, so-called alternative modalities, where people, even skeptics, say, yeah, but what about acupuncture? Does this work? Because there's some sliver of plausibility here. Something's actually happening. You know, Needles are being stuck into the body. What about that? And there was a, a German study where they looked at three groups, people with chronic lower back pain who had never received acupuncture before uh, and did not have surgery, and they treated one group with standard medical treatment, which was mainly um, some like aspirin-like drugs, anti-inflammatories, maybe some uh, um, physical therapy. And then two acupuncture groups, one with so-called real acupuncture, what they called verum acupuncture or true acupuncture, where they actually put them in the places where they're supposed to go. uh, And they had a certified acupuncturist use the the uh, traditional Chinese diagnostic methods to figure out where the needles were supposed to go. And then they had sham acupuncture where they had the acupuncturist put the needles into non-acupuncture locations and not put them in deep enough so that they get stuck into the chi. You know, you have to go down to a certain depth before the needle hits the flowing chi, which is the life energy that is allegedly manipulated by acupuncture. And they weren't manipulated. They weren't twisted or anything or, or palpated once they were inserted. So that was the sham acupuncture. And, what the, and this is a, a large study, 1,100 people. And what they found was that after six months, 47% of the true acupuncture group noted a certain amount of improvement. of the sham acupuncture and 27% of the standard therapy group. Now, the press is presenting this study as acupuncture works, right, which always drives me crazy. It's like saying, you know, a study which shows that some specific surgical procedure is effective for some specific indication saying surgery works. Yeah. You know, for whatever, you know. Um, The chiropractors do that too. Chiropractic works. No this study suggested that this 
specific manipulation worked for this specific indication within the per, the uh, parameters of the study. So so that's one thing. But also they missed a lot of the the real implications of the study. First of all, there was no difference between the real acupuncture and sham acupuncture groups. And this is very consistent with the vast majority of the literature on acupuncture. It, it, it turns out that when you look at all the evidence, it doesn't matter where you stick the needles. It doesn't. It, so that supports the, the scientific idea that you know there is no chi, there is no life, mysterious, unmeasurable, you know, spiritual life energy that's flowing through these lines in the body. That's all pre-scientific superstitious nonsense. And, and all the empirical evidence, all the research basically bears it out. And this study bears it out as well. It doesn't matter where you stick the needles. So, you know, the, the press could have just as well said that study shows acupuncture doesn't work, right? <laughs> or that the, that the entire theoretical basis for acupuncture is wrong. But there was this pretty marked difference between the, the, both of the acupuncture groups and the standard therapy group. So the question is, well, just does sticking needles in the skin, does that have some kind of muscle relaxation or maybe anti-inflammatory or whatever, some kind of a beneficial effect for chronic lower back pain? And I think this study's not enough to really conclude that that is the case because there were still some variables that, were, that weren't being um, controlled for here. First of all, people knew if they were getting acupuncture or not. It wasn't a double-blind study. So the introduction of a novel treatment can generate a placebo effect. And when we're talking about pain, especially back pain, back pain is in fact increasingly being recognized as a huge psychological component to it. Um, and just the level of, of stress, for example, that people have can certainly affect their perceptions of their, their lower back pain. So it's one of those disorders that where, for which there is a very large placebo effect. So you've got to be especially careful with those kinds of, of disorders when you're studying them in this way. And this was not double-blinded because people knew if they were getting acupuncture or not, um, even though they didn't know if they were getting quote-unquote real versus sham acupuncture. That seems huge, though, the, you know? Yeah. The other, I had the other problem with that. I mean, immediately when I read the study, the 27% seemed really low to me. But of course, it depends on exactly you know what their threshold was and what their measures were. But I, I did look around. I mean, I think I need to dig a little bit deeper and see what other people are saying about this. But from w- what I found, most other studies have the the standard therapy or the natural history of back pain is better than twenty seven percent improvement at six months. So I mean, I think that would open up the door even further for a possible placebo effect if the standard group was not really being treated very well or was not getting a, a terribly good outcome. And if you recall from uh, last week, we discussed this study about how most medical literature is wrong. And I put that in in context of um, you can't really interpret a single study. You have to interpret a literature and how the literature evolves over time. So what, what I would conclude from the acupuncture literature is, first of all, we can dispense with the whole notion of chi and acupuncture points. I think that's been empirically really destroyed what by they call the meridian points is that yeah meridians and and the, the lines of of the flow of the chi but there is still this remaining question about is there something physiological happening just from sticking these needles you know through the skin and into the muscles that could be having some physiological effect that that could have some symptomatic benefit in certain situations. And I think there the literature is not compelling. There's a lot of noise and there's a lot of mixed results and it's not really building to a consensus is my impression. A lot of reviews and meta-analyses have been either wishy-washy or negative. 
You mean, Steve, like if you put a needle in the body, it might release a chemical of some kind in reaction to that? Well, sure. There might, it might cause the release of endorphins. It, there's, there's a phenomenon known as counter-irritation where if you, know, like if you bang your elbow, what do you do? Rub it. You rub it. The, the, oh. the rubbing, yeah, if you're not a girl, if, you, if you're a guy, you rub it. <laughs> not a girl or Jay. Or Jay. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> it's a little crying. Yeah. So get back to the rubbing. What are we rubbing now? Your elbow, if you be, if it hurts, oh, the elbow. so the rubbing is is activating other pa- other sensory pathways, which will then diminish the painful sensory pathways. Is that like scratching an itch? Sort of, sort of, not not quite, but sort of. So um, that's another possible mechanism that might be having some temporary symptomatic benefit, you know, to to sticking the needles in. But again, that it's un- it's not really uh, hasn't really been clearly established if that's a significant enough effect that it's worthwhile doing this. Also, I pointed out, and I blogged about this today, I pointed out that other stuff happens during an acupuncture treatment other than the needles getting stuck through the skin. You know, patients are often, will often lay down on a table. They're encouraged to relax. There's often a music playing in the background in a pleasant um, environment, maybe incense. So there's a whole relaxation component to it that certainly could have a symptomatic benefit in lower back pain that's due partly to muscle tension. Um, and that was not controlled for in this kind of study. The bottom line is that we still need better design studies before we can sort this out, and there's a lot of noise in this literature, so I'm not convinced at this point for this subset question of whether or not there could be some symptomatic benefit from just sticking needles somewhere you know, in, in the afflicted area or in the body for acupuncture. So it's kind of a complicated question. Unlike homeopathy, where we could say it's 100% nonsense, it's water, there's nothing to it, literally. You have to be a little bit more qualified with acupuncture because there is something physical going on. Well, Steve, I've read a lot about acupuncture over the years. Mm-hmm. And you, know, you said earlier in the beginning when you were talking, you were saying that there's a, there's a sliver of something there that could have an effect. But if you take acupuncture for for what it's really talking about, it's actually talking about directing energy into the meridian points, correct? Typical energy medicine kind of stuff. So would you draw a parallel here to that in chiropractic? Like, okay, there's, you know, chiropractic may have like a muscle relaxation benefit that some people could detect, but I don't really think acupuncture has anything like that. Really well, I do think it's it's very analogous to chiropractic in in that way that the, there's a there's a the underlying theory is this energy medicine. The chiropractors have the innate intelligence that's they're they're freeing up the flow of that, and, and acupuncturists are freeing up freeing up the flow of chi. But if you dispense with all of that and you look at just what what's happening physical, okay, maybe manipulation causes some temporary muscle relaxation that could have some symptomatic benefit. Maybe there's some counter irritation or endorphin relief release or something going on with the with the acupuncture needles that might have some temporary symptomatic relief. So it's very very similar. But unfortunately, uh, the real physiological scientific questions are buried in an avalanche of of this superstitious nonsense. And uh, all kinds of pseudoscientific claims for the medical applications of these, whether it's using chiropractic to treat asthma or ear infections, or whether it's using acupuncture to cure cancer. You know, that's the stuff we have to get absolutely get rid of that stuff first. My, my father, he served in the Korean War, 1950-51. And when he was there, he went and saw an acupuncturist to, who told him that he could um, get him to stop smoking mm-hmm. <laughs> due to the acupuncture. 
And sure enough, didn't work. <laughs> There's a literature on smoking cessation with acupuncture, and that is pretty negative. That, yeah. yeah, so the studies for that, and also with um, drug addiction, are pretty negative. The next news item deals with a teacher who was fired, he claims, for saying that the Bible isn't literal. This takes place, this is uh, a story of Steve Bitterman, who's 60 years old, who uh, works at the, or worked at the Southwestern Community College, and he teaches a, teaches a course in Western civilization. And he, he uses the Old Testament of the Bible in his class and uses it as a work of literature, uh, as a way of understanding the, the Jewish people, for example. And he talks about it as if the stories in the Old Testament, our, our mythology, our fables are not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in, that's how he discusses it in the context of his course. Now, he was recently fired, and he claims that that's a violation of his free speech and that he was fired because he students complained that their faith in the literal interpretation of the Bible was insulted by this class. That's his claim. The college so far has said that's not true. He was fired over personal reasons. So that's all the information that we have at this point in time. We'll have to see how this story develops. But you know, we we do talk when these news items come up about this conflict between freedom of speech, academic freedom, and the rights of the university to to control the the quality of the content that the, that teachers are teaching in their school, in their university or college. And this is sort of turning it the other way. We, you know, we've We've spoken about you know professors who support the 9/11 conspiracy theories or who, or other ideas about 9/11 or maybe want to teach historical revisionism like Holocaust denial and we've come down pretty firm on the side of saying yep the university has the right to to fire or silence somebody who is teaching something that's so anti-intellectual and made up you know like the Holocaust never happened. This is an interesting one. You know this is interesting. I think that. If the way he's characterizing his class is accurate, I mean, I, I haven't, I don't know what kinds of things he actually said in the class. I only know what's, what's now being reported. That all sounds perfectly legitimate to me, well within the bounds of academic freedom, and it also sounds like the kind of thing that a, a fundamentalist student would absolutely complain about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's very plausible. Well, the thing that doesn't make much sense to me is that, you know, he does go into, if you read the article, he does go into detail about what happened. You know, he just says, you know, these are the things that I'm teaching, and then he makes comparisons like, you know, if if, if a science teacher teaches a scientific fact, they're not going to get fired. But he's saying, you know, he was teaching what he considered to be a scientific fact, and then, right. and he did get fired. And then the school comes back and says, well, believe me, we understand the freedom of speech rights of our teachers, but you know they don't want to comment on this particular case. I think the school would say, you know, these are the grounds in which we're firing him under this auspice because he's making claims that he's being fired for one thing, and the school has a, has something else. You know, why would they hide it? Why wouldn't they just say we're firing him because of this? Yeah, we're, I don't think we're getting the whole story right now. And the article that I read said that uh, Linda Wild, who was the vice president of academic affairs at Southwest. Um, fired him over the telephone, did not give him a specific reason, and that that she was not returning phone calls or emails to the reporter. So she's not talking to the press at at, the, at least that I could find at the current time. By the time this podcast goes up, there may this story may have already developed further, but that's what we have right now. 
Just let me just read you one last quote um, from Bitterman at the end of the article. He says, as a taxpayer, I'd like to know if a tax-supported public institution of higher learning has given veto power over what can and cannot be said in its classrooms to a fundamentalist religious group, he said. If it has, then the taxpaying public of Iowa has a right to know. I certainly agree with that. And But playing devil's advocate, I'm trying to think, is there any... Could there possibly be any legitimate beef that the school has with this guy? And I suppose if he were teaching religious faith in the guise of, uh, of history of Western civilization, even if that faith was atheism, meaning he's teaching you know, that God does not exist— I mean, he was teaching that as part of the course rather than saying, you know, in the context of history, this is how we would interpret this or, or, or of literature. Uh, and that could be a subtle, a subtle distinction. But, you know, you, you can teach the facts, you can teach the, the history or the literature or the science without saying overtly, making faith-based statements overtly. So it would be interesting to see if this plays out, if, that was the, if that's what the accusation was, that he was making some kind of comments that were not in the realm of history or literature, but that were in the realm of faith, even though they were in the negative. And if that's the case, would that be a legitimate case against him? What do you guys think about that? I think it's flimsy at best. Yeah. It's- I know. And, and I think that the school would have come out and said that that's why, if, that's, if that was the reason. Yeah, perhaps. If he was tenured, it takes a long, you know, usually takes a process to get rid of a teacher. He, oh, he, could, he couldn't have been ten, tenured and fired over the phone. I mean, tenure is a process. You're right. So I don't, and the, 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 the article makes no mention of that. Yeah. It's, there simply isn't enough information. But I think what you said yeah. is plausible, Steve. It just depends. What class specifically is he teaching? What tone was he teaching that particular things that upset people or supposedly upset people? There, there's too much unknown here. Right. I mean, at this point, it's more of a hypothetical. So could he have said anything that would be legitimate? If any listeners are interested in hearing more about that topic, though, about treating God as a, a literary character, sort of, because um, that, that's that's what he was doing, right? That, yeah, that's basically. What, um, Jack Miles wrote a great book called God, A Biography, and won the Pulitzer, and it's really a fantastic read. So, highly recommend that. The next news item is is uh, interesting. You know, it's it's a rare event when I see a news item that I really can't decide if it's true or not, and it takes me a while to really wrap my mind around it and, and decide if I think it's real. This one is interesting. The title is, Boy Survives Two-Hour Flight to Moscow Hanging on to Plane Wing. This is a story of a 15-year-old boy from the Urals who stowed away on the, on the outside of a Boeing 737, and after a two-hour flight with the, with the jet going at 500 miles an hour at 30,000 feet, with a wind chill estimated at negative 58 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, man. Negative 50 degrees Celsius. Jeez. The plane landed, and he collapsed onto the tarmac, and, of course, was was rushed to the hospital. So my initial reaction was, now, wait a minute. Well, first of all, there's no way this kid was hanging onto the wing, you know, at 500 miles an hour. That's mm-hmm. just not possible. I found another report, this one in Pravda, and the Pravda report uh, had some quotes from the boy. And the he I re- saw clouds. He says that <laughs> he climbed into the wing, 
which I'm not sure what he really meant by that, and that he sat on top of a tire. And f- and so that, that it might mean that he actually crawled up into the landing gear. Yeah, and he was that's inside what that the means. landing gear. Now, so that lends at least a layer of plausibility to this. Yeah, he wasn't like holding on with right. his fingernails. Right. On Most the people they've wing. found who have done that, though, have died. They that's haven't right. survived it. That's right. There are reports of people doing that, hiding up in the landing gear, and then they, they typically freeze to death. Well, it only went 808 miles, which to a jet, they can cover that really quickly. Well, it was two hours. They said two hours. Two hours. That's a lot that's of time. A time. It's a long time. And then, you know, 30,000 feet sounds like a lot, too, but that's just a little bit higher than the, than the peak of Mount Everest. Uh, 30,000 feet, though, you know, it's like... No, go unconscious. No, almost no oxygen, point, right? I mean, how much can you can you the, breathe outside of thirty thousand? I thought ten thousand feet was the limit. The oxygen tension was about thirty percent of what it would be at sea level. Well, Jay, people can survive on the top of Mount Everest without oxygen. People have climbed to the top of Mount Everest with no oxygen, but they're acclimated and they're physically okay. fit, and they take weeks and weeks to get their bodies acclimated to that altitude. But then again, they have to be there for a long time. Uh, he was unconscious the entire flight, so he was not yeah. that. Make again, that's another layer of plausibility he, he, that he would, and I don't think he would be conscious. And he didn't regain conscious until after the plane landed. There's also reports that he has severe frostbite. They're, they think they're going to have to amputate both of his hands because of the extreme frostbite that he suffered. So the details are actually starting to make more sense over time. And when you actually ask the questions like what would the oxygen be how high is that how cold was it it's at, right at the edge I think of plausibility yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if it turns out that this that, that there were some different elements to the story that, it, that what we're hearing is not true but I guess I could buy it if it turns out to be true with the, with the way the elements are, are moving in a more plausible direction you know he was in the landing gear he was unconscious the whole time you know he had the frostbite. Yeah, it's right. You're right, Steve. It's right on the edge. And what about pictures? And, and you know, with today's day and age, it's usually pictures. There was no pictures. Well, there's a picture. I see a picture of a kid on an operating table surrounded by surgeons. But who knows who the hell that right. is? I mean, there's not. Yeah. It's not authenticated by what's in the picture itself. You know, I suppose if they sent us his hands, you know, <laughs> there'd be a well, little more to it. What What's the What's the motivation to say faking a story? Well, but we like know there's this. there are urban legends, there are fake stories like this all the time. They crop yeah. up, they get whatever, they get reported yeah, but do they because come up they're as fantastic. news articles. Yeah, like oh this? yeah, oh yes. New- newspapers report fake stories all the time, and they bury their retraction, you know, deep somewhere in the middle, you know, th- days later. Oh yeah, you know, you know, all those stories, the finger in the chili or the the rat that was and fake? the chicken, all those things turn out to be fake, but they get reported credulously by the press all the time. So I would, I have no trouble believing that a story like this could be could be fake or grossly distorted and still being propagated through the press. I don't have a problem with that. But typically there's the red flags. It's the friend of a friend, right? It's the second hand. It's they usually do not name people by name, give specific references or details that could be checked out. This one says what the airport was. It names, It gives the kid's actual name. Uh, Andre, you know, it says what which hospital he went to. So it's giving more details than the typical urban legend story gives. So I don't know. I, I, I if I had to put my nickel down at this point with what I've been able to discover, I would say that this is an amazing but true story. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. Well, let's go on to your questions and emails. 
The first question comes from Bruce Batello Jr. from Rhode Island in the United States. And Bruce writes, Let me begin by saying I love the podcast. In fact, it's the only podcast I download and listen to every week. That's cool. My girlfriend and I watched the new television show Mansers on the Spike Network. This show claims to answer the most important questions to guys. The featured question was whether party girls, athletic girls, or smart girls are better in bed. Unfortunately, I can't find anything along the lines of citation, so I can't confirm if what they claimed is true. However, there was a doctor discussing a study. In this study, it was determined party girls generally think all they have to do is show up for sex and their job is done. <laughs> athletic, athletic girls generally view sex as a recreational and competitive activity, and smart girls are generally more comfortable with their sexuality and ultimately better in bed. I am sorry to ask you to open this veritable Pandora's box of more worship and attempted wooing of the lovely and intelligent Rebecca, but I was wondering if you had any knowledge of this or other studies done like this. Plus, I thought it was something all of you, especially Rebecca, would enjoy hearing, and it gives me hope for the future when a network boasting it's the first, men, the first network for men comes right out and tells men intelligent women are more desirable. Wow. That is that is uh, a nice thing to hear, I guess. Where do we Although, sign up for this study? <laughs> yeah, really, that's what I wonder. And I mean, you're two of those. You're two that's of what, those. Yeah. No, I'm. I'm. I believe I'm all three. Uh, which two did you think I was? Party girl and smart girl. Oh, okay. Well, I also play football every week. So does that make yeah. me an athletic? And you do concert? ride your bike nice. to your job. And I ride the bike every day. And I used to play yeah. roller derby. So I'm pretty sure that that puts me. Oh, and I that, played on softball too. And you pole dance occasionally. I mean, that really does <laughs> classify you as one hell of a lay, Rebecca. That's that's <laughs> you got the you you got the bed cred, baby. But it wouldn't qualify you for the study because there's exactly too many variables. Like, so for the study, I'm I'm wondering, did they ha- did girls have to say? I'm one or the other because I mean I'm most, a party girl. Right, I'm an athletic yeah. girl. I'm an athletic <laughs> I'm a smart girl. girl. You know, <laughs> <laughs> or did the guys sort them by type? Yeah, mm. I don't know. I, I looked. I looked on PubMed to see if I could find anything that bared even a passing resemblance to this, and I really couldn't. Yeah, I couldn't you, find anything either. Yeah, but I no. can. I can classify women by into these three classifications just by fondling their breasts for ten minutes. Uh huh. Because mm-hmm. yeah. the athletic ones are the ones that give you the black eye. Oh, the <laughs> no, I, just, yeah. I have my well, own mechanism of finding out. The, the smart truth. ones are the ones who already had the restraining order ready to go. You know, the Spike <laughs> no. Network is not exactly the uh, Discovery Health Channel here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, That's we're interesting, with, though. With evil, even playing fields here. So the, the first thing that strikes me about this claim, first of all, is that to whatever degree this may be true for women, it's ten times as true for men. <laughs> I mean, the smart guys are far and away the the best in bed. I mean, there's yeah. no question. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah. yes. And and so, how many smart guys have you slept with? Oh, <laughs> too many to count. Really? <laughs> okay. Just That's myself, wrong. actually. Uh, well, yeah, you know, you, I'm sure that doesn't count. Re- Re- Rebecca, are you refuting me on that? No. Okay. We'll take your sounds like a there. There we go. <laughs> She's like, tacit uh, agreement. She scrolls through the map. Oh. <laughs> Let me see. Um, number two hundred and eighty-five. He was athletic, wasn't he? Ah uh, ha 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 ha. Anyway, on, love you. I'm jealous. Come on, keep going. Shut up. I noticed. I noticed there wasn't a category for funny women, but that's because, as Christopher Hitchens says, women aren't funny. That's true. There aren't any. So you don't so there aren't any. So we don't, that's why there's no category for that. But Steve, your observation was actually dead on. If you if you insert if you say, okay, a party guy, an athletic guy, or a smart guy, you know, I agree with you. 
Yeah, well, I mean, even Revenge of the Nerds figured that out in that movie. Yeah. They said, hey, what do nerds do? They think about sex 24-7. Of course they're better at it. That's all they and think about. And it was about. in a movie, so you know it's true. Yeah, I mean, football jocks, <laughs> what, they think about football all day. They don't know what yeah. they're doing. Jocks, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and they think they have to just show up, just like the party girls, right? It's interesting. Yeah. It's funny. It, it, it is. It's, a, it's, it's a funny. Little pops, you know, cultural, social psychology. It's, a, it's fun. Yeah. But I don't think we'll have the definitive answer to that anytime soon. No, but More. we will conduct the breast fondling tests whenever women are prepared. Just bring them in. Uh-huh. Yeah, I saw Jay's budget yeah. for that, by the way. It includes, what was it, like $20 per lap dance? Was that what you were budgeting for that, Jay? <laughs> yeah, and a pack of gum. It's all good. All right, the next question comes from Ian Byrne in Sydney, Australia. And he Hello, writes, Ian. Blimey. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> Sorry. Love the show. Your cut-to-the-quick approach to questions. I would be very interested to hear your thoughts on the practice of taking colloidal minerals as a dietary supplement with its reportedly extensive health benefits. And then he gives us a reference below. I also confess that I have been a regular consumer of these minerals, so at worst, if you burst my bubble, you will also save me some money. We also got a second email uh, with the same question, this one from Warren Mahey in New Zealand. So I guess down under in New Zealand and Australia, they're having a lot of problems with the colloidal minerals. Well, here's my cut-to-the-quick approach. It's all nonsense. There's no proven benefit to the colloidal minerals as supplements, and they have actually have been studied. Uh, actually, Warren um, provides a, a link to Quackwatch. Uh, Quackwatch, is, Quackwatch is run by Stephen Barrett, and uh, it's chock-full of information on uh, all sorts of dubious claims. And he has a good article about colloidal silver, risk without benefit. Uh, so a lot of times when we're talking about some uh, so-called alternative methods or supplements, the the direct physical or biological risk may be on the low side. You know, homeopathic remedies are water. There's not much biological risk there. Uh, but there's also no benefit. Here we have actual biological risk without the benefit. So it's a, a lose-lose situation. These uh, colloidal minerals like colloidal silver actually can accumulate in some of the tissues in the body and can have, over a long period of time, you can have accumulative toxicity from them. Steve, what is a colloidal mineral? It's uh, it's suspended. Like, I think they use some kind of electrical process to suspend the minerals in, in a solution or water so that you, so that you can consume them that way. Okay. Of course, the claims for it are the claims for the kind of stuff you would see for any snake oil remedy. On the the Quackwatch article, they have a a typical ad here for colloidal silver. It says, uh, safely stops internal and external infections, bronchitis, burns and bites, colds and flu, food poisoning, herpes, gonorrhea, meningitis, pink eye, pneumonia, ringworm, shingles, and the list goes on. And terminal gullibility. And ter- well, <laughs> doesn't cure the gullibility, unfortunately. You just got to take more of it. I actually met a woman at a, um, an alternative medicine conference that was being sponsored by, the, by PSYCOP, now CSI, and she suffered from Argyria. Argyria is uh, what happens when the, the colloidal silver builds up in your skin over years. And her skin was silvery gray. This woman looked like an alien. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. She had the, that sort of silvery gray skin color you, that, that is often attributed to the so-called gray, you know, those big-eyed uh, aliens. Wow, what was that doing to her uh, kidneys and liver? Yeah. 
Oh, so it's yeah. not, it's it's not uh, it's not pretty. And she was ma- she she made the rounds at these um, types of conferences, sort of as a living uh, cautionary tale about the potential risks mm. of uh, of taking colloidal silver. Well, that's one way to take it with you, I guess. You think she's still around today, Steve? I, I have not seen or heard of her, from her in a while, but I wouldn't necessarily know. So it's, I don't know. Mm. Is the bottom line. So quick answer: it's just another form of snake oil. And, and an unsafe one to boot. Righto. Now we're going to go down under for our interview with Richard Saunders of the Australian Skeptics. So let's go to the interview now. Joining us now is Richard Saunders. Richard, welcome to the Skeptics Guide. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, Richard is joining us from Sydney, Australia, where he runs the Mystery Investigators. Can you just start by telling us about that? Mystery Investigators uh, grew out of a discussion over dinner one night at an Australian Skeptics Convention. Um, On the dinner table, there was a teacher who suggested it might be a good idea if some skeptics came to visit her school and talk to the kids about skepticism and and so on. So a couple of us got together and we thought, well, we'll make it fun. Uh, we put together a, an hour show with uh, water divining and uh, all sorts of miracle claims. And um, I think the draw card was really a big water divining test. The school loved it so much they booked us straight away for the next year. And uh, the people who performed, two of us, Alinda and myself, decided to form uh, an official company. So we do now go around to schools and uh, perform our Mystery Investigator Show. Excellent. Wow, that sounds like a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. I, I get a huge kick out of it. In fact, uh, just a couple of months ago, we did uh, something like 12 shows in a row at the Australian Museum here in Sydney as part of their Science Week, and we had uh, hundreds of kids come through. We'd give a, I think it was about a 45-minute show, and then we'd have a little break, and then the next room full of kids would come in and we'd do another show. It's fantastic. And what kind of things do you do for them? Well, we've got, uh, I mean, the draw card is the water divining because it shows water divining or water dowsing and the kids can test it for themselves and it explains to them how to do a double blind test in science and what that means. We also have a real bed of nails, which is um, the finale of the show because we always get a teacher to come down and lie on the bed of nails and the kids go nuts because it's the teacher lying on the bed of nails. Sure. We have a predict the future test with a game we call heads and tails where we toss a coin and the kids have to predict whether it's going to be heads or tails and after about seven or eight tosses of the coin there's one kid left and then we ask all the other kids in the room now is that kid psychic because they predicted the toss of a coin gets them thinking about statistics and uh, things like that and um, we do a fire walking demonstration no real fire of course we just use their imagination but we explain all about that and we have optical illusions and uh, endless stuff we, we I think the longest show we did was probably an hour and a half and then questions and then the kids wanted more so um, it's quite wow. successful what age groups do you target we do both here primary school, which is about uh, about eight years old, nine years old, ten, eleven, all the way up through high school, and uh, anybody who who wants to hear us. So you do magic as well during the show. Oh yeah, uh, the show starts off with spoon bending. I mean, we have to thank Uri Geller for giving us a great <laughs> shtick. Well, <laughs> really, well, yeah. he, he didn't invent that. <laughs> yeah, I've seen it. I've seen that trick probably a hundred times, and I actually still enjoy watching it. I enjoy. I enjoy doing it, and what. I love about spoon bending, especially when I do it for 
primary school, elementary school kids and high school kids is most of them have never heard about it. And which helps us make the point, well, if it was real and this character in the 70s could really bend metal and spoons with his mind, uh, it would be part of our society now. Everyone would know about it, Mm -hmm. but they haven't. And they think it's funny, too. They they think it's great. And after the show, of course, you get a rush of children coming up and the most... Uh, the most thing they ask is, how do you do it? How do you do it? Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Uh, th- and I would be one of them, too. I love asking magicians how they do it. <laughs> now, let me ask you a question Qu- quickly. In Australia, do you guys spell skeptic with a K or a C? We spell it uh, officially. The Australian skeptics spell it with a K. Uh, in Australian English, which is more or less British English, it's spelled with a C. And some people complain about that. And if that's all they have to complain about, we suggest they go and get a life. Right. So you guys swing both ways. <laughs> okay. You don't want to yeah, consult the, the UK I mean, skeptics or the United States skeptics. They so just sort of play both sides. We, yeah. We, I mean, honestly, it's if someone's worried about spelling color with an, a U in it or adding a Z here or there, it's like it's so unimportant. <laughs> so now, what's a Z exactly? Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've got some American listeners out there. we got to straighten them out. Oh, okay, okay. That's dead, baby. Well, a hey. Z is what what a Z was before it evolved. Uh, <laughs> now, you have uh, some of this on your website. You actually have some videos online there. I saw you have one episode that I could find on your website of uh, Mystery Investigators Online TV. Is, are, oh, is yeah. there more on there, or is it, is, is it more than the one that I saw, or do you have more coming? <laughs> There's more coming. We've got um, we've got about four episodes in various processes of being edited or filmed or something like that. I just discovered, uh, because I also do the Skeptic Tank podcast for the Australian Skeptics, that um, I, I, I've turned into a sort of a one-man band because I've got all the skills required to do audio editing and video editing and video filming, and I appear in them. By and by, it just gets too much, and um, so I have to pace myself a little bit. But I will try to put more videos up as soon as I can. And then there's the origami, too. Let's not forget about that. Oh, yeah. Well, just recently, I've been having enormous fun... Um, I invented an origami pigasus, the flying pig for the James Randi. I said to James Randi when I was with him on the cruise with Rebecca that I would invent uh, an original origami pig for him because I make origami. I've written books about it. I've stuck at it and I came up with one. I'm delighted that people all around the world now are folding the little origami pig. It's great fun. You you invited us out to Australia, but I'm still waiting for my ticket. Uh, wasn't work. it in the post? <laughs> was it in the post? <laughs> the QE2 yeah, right. will be at your door soon, Rebecca. Hey, hey Rebecca, come. <laughs> pick you up. Yeah. Come on. I, I, what did I do just just uh, earlier this month? I, I went all the way to Alaska. That's that's true for me. Just for you, of right. course. <laughs> so you, were, you were on the Alaskan cruise with the uh, James Randi Education Foundation. I was. I was. And it was enormous fun. I mean, I'm so glad I went, apart from the, the fact that you got to speak with James Randi and uh, really interesting people. It's just the scenery was beautiful. Uh, we had great times, uh, lots of laughs and uh, good lectures. So, Richard, let me ask you, how many times did Rebecca chum off the boat? Chum off the boat. Chum off the boat. <laughs> yeah, you know, is this an American? She's, she's drinking. She's you know, <laughs> it she's, she's a little tipsy walking down. And next thing you know, you're holding her hair back and she's giving it up. <laughs> oh, I see. Oh, I see. She's. Uh, <laughs> I, I didn't notice any, but Randy told me a lot of people were yelling out for somebody called Huey who was lost over overboard. They go up to the deck and say Huey. <laughs> I, I was not one of them. I assure you. You are not one of them, Rebecca. No. 
Hey, Richard. Richard, obviously James Randi has uh, Yuri Geller to, as his nemesis uh, in his career. Do you, do you have Do you have a nemesis? Is there an equivalent to that for you? Someone yeah, Rebecca. Who, uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, <Aww. nemesis. laughs> you said we were best friends forever. What happened? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That, 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 that's a very good question. I think they come and go in this country. Um, we get our regular gaggle of people who claim to talk with the dead. I have been called all sorts of interesting names. I've had death threats, which has been interesting. But the funniest thing I've been called is a mouseketeer of evil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my God, what I does know. that even mean? That's, that's yeah. cool, I thought Britney actually. Spears was the mouseketeer of evil. Well, th- this came about because uh, you may be familiar with Ratbag, Peter Bowditch, who runs the ratbags.com website. And he's uh, also in the Australian Skeptics. He's very strong on the lunatics who run around telling uh, parents not to vaccinate their children. Mm-hmm. So I, I went to a talk these lunatics gave, and I, I was with Peter, and later on on one of their bulletin boards, they referred to me, well, they referred to Peter being there and me as his henchman or the mouseketeer of evil. So I, I think that's quite good. Yeah, I, I yeah. always consider those kinds of uh, insults and, and labels from the other side as badges of honor, mm. right? I, mean, I don't... I don't I don't mind them at all. I mean, yeah. it, but the the strangest thing was the death threat. I didn't expect a death threat. I don't think it was serious. And uh, earlier this year, I was attacked in one of the Sydney newspapers in the editorial, which was, it really took me by surprise. I didn't know what, how quite to react to that. We responded on the Australian Skeptics website, but to see my name in the, in the newspaper and being personally attacked because I dared to suggest that miracles don't happen. That was quite something. Mm. Damn you. Awesome. So you mentioned uh, vaccinations. How big is the anti-vaccination movement in Australia, and how how are you guys doing in terms of your compliance with vaccination? Do you know? Very good, I'm pleased to say. I mean, we've got a lot of fringe groups in this country. By and large, they don't do too well. I'm not sure what it is. Maybe it's something to do with the water we drink here. It's like the creationists. They, there's a lobby group, and they try hard, but by and large, the Australian public just don't take them seriously. I'm very pleased about that. But they try. I mean, uh, there are a lot of parents out there who are scared into not vaccinating their children and last year or the year before i attended a children's and babies expo in sydney which is just for young parents to come along and see the latest diaper or the latest bottle or the latest this and that and there was a stand there by the homeopaths and we asked them they didn't know who we were and i went and i asked them i i said i hear you can use homeopathy to vaccinate your children and they said, oh, yes, yes, you can do that. We're not supposed to tell you, but you can do that. So we blew the whistle on that. We had a uh, news release, and we got on the radio, and we just blasted them for daring to tell parents that they could use magic sugar water to vaccinate their children against uh, deadly diseases. Nice, nice work. So yeah. you're, you're pretty familiar with the kind of stuff that we deal with in the United States. What would you say are some of the major differences? Like what do we have here that is just conspicuously absent in Australia? Or on the other side, what, do you, what kind of pseudosciences or, or true believers do you have in Australia that we would not be familiar with in the United States? I, I can't think of anything, honestly. The, the thing you have that we don't is a, is a, a, f- a huge population. So anything that happens over there happens a lot. Um, when you have conventions, they're big conventions. When you have a, a, an interest group in a small area, it's a big group because of the, the huge population of the United States. But, I mean, really, we have all the same things you guys have. We have the anti-vaccination people, the cancer cures, the water diviners, the water witches. Um, I think that's probably the, the one thing we have possibly a little more simply because a lot of Australia is dry 
and uh, water diviners are usually in demand. So, but otherwise, it's pretty much what you're saying. It's the same stuff. It's just. I think so. I think so. Look, I mean, apart from the population difference and the fact that we like to play cricket, we're we're just another first world modern country. Right, and that, that's that's you know, consistent with some things I've read about some specific pseudosciences where they tend to spread along linguistic and cultural lines. So English speaking countries do tend to get all the same type of stuff like crop circles spread to English-speaking countries, um, which, of course, if it was a, actually a UFO phenomenon, yeah. why would it do that, you know, as opposed to a cultural phenomenon? So I'm actually, I guess I, I shouldn't be surprised that you're saying that. But what about the Australian Aborigines? Is, uh, in, in this country, uh, there is, there is a, a resurgence of interest and belief in Native American mysticism and spirituality, um, which is riding mm. along the coattails of... of of interest in just Native Americans. So I guess, you know, people think that for whatever reason, because they're another culture, they were downtrodden, that their superstitions and their mysticism is okay. Does is, is the same kind of thing happen with the Aborigines in Australia? You know, not that I have ever heard. You hear stories sometimes about how the Aborigine people here is, um, supposedly have strange uh, mystical connections with, with each other or the land. But honestly, I don't think anything's ever come to the desk of the Australian skeptics. So... Not that I am aware of. And if they do, they certainly don't come up and, and make claims and, and try to win our um, $100,000 prize, which is very similar to the James Randi million-dollar prize. No energy vortices to report by the Aborigine folk or anything like that? Afraid not. No, yeah, they're pretty quiet. Yeah. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah. No, they're pretty quiet when it comes to that. I think they've got more important things to concentrate on, like their own standards of health and education mm. and um, and uh, social issues. I think that would be a little, just a little bit too frivolous. Hey, Richard. Now, Randy did uh, a big stunt. I don't remember what decade he did it, but uh, I was with his uh, friend Jose, and they did that psychic stunt where they fooled the media. Ah, Carlos. Carlos. Yeah, Carlos. Yep. Now, oh, yes. All right, first off, let's, let's just for the, our audience, do you remember when he did that? Uh, not off the top of my head. It would have been It would have been the mid-80s. Yeah, I think it was the 80s. Do you remember when he did that? I remember. Oh, I remember it very well. Well, tell us about it because I, I want like a first-hand perspective on what it was like to be you know, living in the country and like reading the news. It was 1988, by the way. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, Rebecca. First-hand perspective. Now, I was not involved with Australian skeptics at this stage, so I was simply an audience person, a citizen, and this was all happening. Well, we had the uh, channeling was popular in that era, uh, era of the 80s. People would come out and put on funny voices and, and channel. The first time I heard about this was on one of the nightly news magazine type shows where they said and making news in america we there's this channeler called carlos and they showed clips of carlos and then he's coming to australia and it, it got more and more publicity but what really did it was this guy um jose alvarez mm -hmm. appeared on one of the morning shows it was today or something like that very similar to the today show in in the united states and threw water over one of the hosts and stormed off the set well that that was just priceless publicity then everybody wanted to know about carlos and he was channeling and they booked uh, the sydney opera house and they filled up the auditorium there and he gave his channeling but of course all as we know behind the scenes directing uh, jose what to say through an earpiece was james randy and it was all um, a con and when it was revealed that it was a con the media turned savage upon the 60 minutes program which arranged it and a good friend of ours richard carlton who sadly died last year 
and they went really, really savage on him, which was totally, they totally missed the point. They'd, they'd been fooled, they'd misled the Australian public by not doing proper research, and they didn't blame themselves, that they blamed the, um, the 60 Minutes and James Randi. Now, did anybody in the media eventually come out and say what actually happened and, and really tell the true story and get this point to the public, or, or you know, are you just aware of it? because you're a skeptic now. The, the point of the whole exercise was to show that the media can mislead the public by not doing research and simply jump on any story which is sexy and they just follow the bandwagon. That was the whole point of the exercise. That was more or less lost because the media, after they've discovered that they were hoodwinked, they made the story that how dare 60 Minutes uh, trick us. Okay, so it wasn't like a year or two later it kind of worked itself out. It was exp it was exposed on 60 Minutes. It was interesting. There was all this publicity about Carlos, and then the next thing I remember, there was a promotion for 60 Minutes saying, this week on 60 Minutes, Carlos, he's a fake and we can prove it. So, oh, wow, he's a fake and they can they prove got it. Him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it was, and then saying, we can prove it because we set it up. Now, I've posted that whole video on... Now, I believe Google videos. If you go to Google yeah. and just video Carlos or James Randi, or both, in fact, would be better, you'll find that video. It's fascinating. Do you think there's still people uh, who believe in Carlos? <laughs> Boy, knowing, some, knowing some of the people involved in that industry, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> no, I think I would be surprised. <laughs> I mean, it was such a total fake, and it was exposed as a total fake. But, you know, after six years in this game, that. I, I can't be too surprised about what comes along or what people will believe. I, I worry about something like what happened with Randy on Carson when he exposed Peter Popoff and Carson got hundreds of letters from people asking, where can I talk to that televangelist? So I, I just picture that there are still some people out there like, I wonder what ever happened to that Carlos guy. <laughs> well, may, maybe not Carlos specifically, but maybe they can think like, oh, well, that Carlos was a fake, but I know someone else who can also do these same things. They're real. Yeah. So it must be real. Now, right? but uh, channeling at the time was very popular. I remember other channelers, and I just remember hearing about it. But these days, you scarcely hear about channeling at all. I mean, I'm sure there are people out there still doing it. Well, you have to, there are quite a bit of people that are talking to the dead and talking to pets and stuff like that. I mean, that's that's huge. But what what, what I mean by channeling is someone sits there and they shut their eyes and and they they shake and flutter and then they start speaking in a funny voice. I am oh, yeah. the magic. I just think it's evolved. You know, it's the flavor of the decade. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think which is also invaluable for us to remember all this and little details like that because when we talk about it. We can point out to our listeners or our audience or whatever the case may be that if you all remember back in the 80s, this was popular and it yes. came and went. If it was real, it would still be popular and we'd be getting real information and there'd be lots of people doing it. But it was simply the flavor of the month. Yeah, it's definitely past its peak. So I, I, I can hear what you're saying when you, when you said earlier that you're a one-man show. You know, we're all homegrown just doing this in our uh, precious spare time. But given that, what, what are your big plans for the future? What, do you, what, do, you, what uh, do you hope to expand to? We love to do more mystery investigator show. Alinda in the show, who's my partner in the show and myself. We have other people in the Australian Skeptics who help out from time to time. In fact, when I was swanning around the uh, 
the waters of Alaska with Rebecca, one of my good friends, Peter Bowditch, the Rat Bag, helped out with the Mystery Investigator show because we had a booking, and obviously I couldn't fulfill that booking, so he helped out, which I'm enormously grateful for. So any expansion of that show, the more schools we can reach, the better. The Australian skeptics keep going strong, making our, our journal every four, uh, every three months. How many members do you have? Um, I think it's about 2,500 in Australia, and worldwide yeah. there are some, I, I'm not sure. Do you have regular meetups? We we do. We have Skeptics in the Pub here in Sydney, which is uh, the first Thursday of every month. Uh, more details on our website, www.skeptics.com.au. And that's a great opportunity for anybody to come along, have a beer, have uh, a nice dinner, and talk about anything. There's no set topics. You don't even have to talk about skepticism. But the, the, uh, we usually do talk about skepticism. And it's Sydney's only free spoon-bending lessons. <laughs> Oh, God. You haven't gotten kicked out of the restaurant yet for that? Uh, we bring our own spoons. We make it oh, clear to the people we bring our own spoons. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's enormous fun. So whatever we, whatever we can do. Well, Richard, thank you so much for talking with us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, everybody. Yeah, yeah thanks, thanks Richard. Richard. It was cool to have you. Thank and you, we, Richard. We definitely have to make the trip down to Australia sometime. And we'll oh, please do. I'm waiting. As hey, Richard, you, you, got, you have to go to TAM 6. TAM 6, look, I have every intention to be at TAM 6. I want to be at TAM 6, and if you are there too, I'd love to meet you there. Oh, we, yeah, will, we're going. we will definitely yeah, we'll, be there, so if you're we'll there, there, we'll see you. We'll see you there. Sure. Party, party, party. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> Bye. And now, Randy speaks. Randy, one of, one of the more despicable con artists that we encounter are faith healers, and you certainly have a lot of experience with them. Can you tell us about some of your experiences with uh, some of the worst faith healers? Well, uh, let's face it that uh, one of my very first experiences with, uh, I was about to say debunking, but I don't accept that terminology, of course, uh, of investigating these people was with a faith healer who was known as Little David. I encountered him when I... I guess I'd be about 17 at the time, and I was in Toronto, Canada, where I was born and almost raised. And I was in the company of my good friend, uh, Terrence Kingsley Lawson, who was a magic buddy of mine. He uh, dragged me to this uh, church on a Thursday afternoon, I seem to recall, uh, when the church was not being used for legi legitimate church work, that there is any such thing in the world. We saw this man, little David, and this is a kid about my age, I guess, about 17 at that time. Uh, who had been highly touted. He had blonde hair, which we suspected was bleach. No, could that be? Yes, I think it could be. Uh, it was sort of reddish blonde, and he was uh, thoroughly made up and such, but he hadn't quite experienced him because he was being touted by the preacher out front, uh, who was building the audience up into great expectation. Uh, Lawson and myself sat at the uh, on the upper balcony at the extreme left side. From where I sat, uh, I could get a view of a little bit of a rose garden that was outside the church. And I called attention, uh, the attention of, of Lawson to the fact that uh, we could see little David uh, adjusting his uh, tie and his shirt and whatnot and sort of plumping himself up and with a big mirror looking at himself to make sure his hair was exactly right. It was a Thursday afternoon. He wanted to look good. So we were sort of getting a look at him uh, prepared to go on stage, so to speak. And then, to my astonishment, you know, pardon the indelicacy of the observation, 
Uh, they decided that it was uh, urinate, and he did so in the rose garden. I think the roses all died instantly. I'm not sure, but I couldn't see from where I was, but I, I swear they could have. Uh, and we thought that was pretty funny that here was this sainted character who uh, was uh, taking advantage of the rose garden for purposes other than what it was designed for. In any case, he did uh, manage to uh, straighten himself up, and when they announced, here he is, little David, and he roared on stage uh, like a rock star. Now, we didn't have rock stars in those days, uh, but we had other stars of various kinds. I'm sure that they uh, all took lessons from him, or he took lessons from them. I'm not sure. And he burst out on the stage and started to screech and hoop and holler and hallelujah and carry on. And he did some apparent healings. Uh, we were highly suspicious of the healings, um, as we uh, were sort of prepared to be. And uh, we tried to follow uh, a couple of the healies outside, and we found that they got into uh, uh, the same van and drove off, and we thought maybe they were from a church group, though they might have been uh, plants that he had their ringers who would claim to have been healed. In any case, uh, I was quite annoyed by seeing this thing because it was pretty obvious to me that these people uh, were not genuinely afflicted with any of the diseases they said they had, and they couldn't be instantly healed that way. Uh, but it was my first encounter with the faith healers. Now, that tuned me up to the fact that, uh, well, many years later, coming upon uh, people like W.B. Grant and uh, Peter Popoff, of course, who we thoroughly exposed on the Johnny Carson show, as I'm sure you know, they all do the same thing. It's the same razzmatazz. It's the same showmanship. They learn from one another. Catherine Coleman, way back, we used to see her on television. I never got to uh, meet Kathy. Uh, but uh, she was a, a similar character, very ethereal and dressed in, uh, she looked like she was dressed with the, the curtains uh, just off the, right off the windows because it was all filmy and she looked like Isadora Duncan as she glided around on the stage. As I say, I only saw her on television, but she was uh, typical of a certain class of these people, the old evangelist type that uh, wanted to dress in a spiritual fashion and use their... Uh, their so-called powers to uh, heal people left and right. Now, the the stories about the faith healers that I could give you are rather numerous. Most of them are expressed in my books and in my one book called The Faith Healers, strangely enough. But that that book and my other books really need to be upgraded and updated because so much has happened in the field since. Uh, the fact that Peter Popoff uh, was using a uh, a little hearing device in his ear to intercept broadcasts from his wife who was backstage and was monitoring the place by television, by video, that is, um, shows that the faith eaters and, and the rest of the uh, scam artists out there have moved up a little bit, not very much, but a little bit in their use of technology. I think that people like Catherine Coleman and uh, the Holy Paul, I think was his name. Uh, oh, that, that, was, uh, that was an interesting one. I, I must get back to that in a moment. Have have used um, some technology along the way, but uh, let me tell you about this fellow named Paul. Someplace in California, I've forgotten where it was. Somebody took me to a service, and we stayed in the uh, balcony and observed him down on the floor. And we thought that uh, he was probably using a radio intercept. And then we discovered inadvertently 
what the radio intercept was. His wife was introduced on the stage with uh, their current baby. She wandered up into the balcony. She was walking back and forth with the baby and jogging the baby the way mothers do to keep the baby quiet and satisfied. And um, <laughs> very interesting, uh, she would pause every now and then and consult a pad that she had underneath the baby, like a stenographer's pad with notes on it. And uh, I determined to get close to her, and I snuck up behind a column and listened to what she was uh, saying to the baby. And she was saying things like, uh, his name is Sam, and he's in the third row with the red and white shirt. So what she was doing was transmitting to her husband on stage. She had all the notes that she'd gathered about the, the victims that they were about to fleece, and she was broadcasting by talking to the baby. Now, that was, that was a pretty interesting bit of misdirection. You know, you can't uh, fault a mother for cooing to her baby, but she was transmitting information to Paul. Uh, David Paul was his name. There, there have been so many gimmicks like this, but uh, they have not used technology except with this sole exception, so far as I know. Randy, thank you very much. A pleasure. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts. Two are genuine, and one is fictitious, fake, and fraudulent. And then I challenge my rogues gallery of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. And you all can play along at home. Is everyone ready for this week? Yes. Ready. Ready, no. Steve. Let's do okay. it. Okay. Now, if you recall, last week, I stumped all of you. You did. I did. Yes, first, was, first, first time in a long time. Had, had just a long barely. Time. Just barely. And Bob was absolutely hilarious. Bob, Bob yes. was beside himself. I'll be playing the role of Bob tonight. <laughs> okay. So we'll see how you do this week. First news item. New study shows that women with anorexia nervosa actually experience the taste of food differently than normal controls. Item number two. A computer model demonstrates how tolls can actually decrease travel time for drivers. And item number three, researchers have developed a device that uses stem cells to identify terrorists in crowded public locations, such as airports. Evan, go first. Oh, no. Study showing that women with anorexia nervosa experience taste of food differently than normal controls. Sure. I know my father, who suffered with some diseases in his life, had had problems. I mean, anorexia wasn't one of them, but he did have things that affected the ta- how he, he tasted his food and that they tasted differently. So I think that's totally plausible. The computer model demonstrating how tolls can actually decrease travel time for drivers. And then the third one was uh, researchers developing a device using stem cell to identify terrorists in crowded public locations. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I think that I won't be surprised if that one is the fiction, but I'm going to go with uh, number two, the computer model demonstrating tolls decreasing travel times is fiction. Okay. It's just my gut feeling. Okay. Jay? Well, number two, the second one about the uh, decreasing travel time for drivers, I hope that you can answer these questions. For all drivers or some drivers? All drivers. Because my initial thought was if you have... You know, one of those devices that allows you to drive right through. No, it's not. It's not benefiting some at the expense of others. It's all drivers. Okay. Is this like a a, a study 
of actual drivers like that are driving today through tolls or a possible technique that can... It's a computer model. It's a computer model. So it's a possible technique that they're, they're speculating on. Sure. Or you don't want to answer that. It's a computer model. I think that speaks for itself. <laughs> I, I think you're being you know, evasive Coy. here. Um, okay. That's interesting. Uh, and I can't see there that being the reverse. I can't see you doing the old switcheroo on that one. Women, anorexic women actually taste, and it's women too. You say it's actually women, not just people that have that are anorexic. Experience taste of food differently than normal controls. That's that's very interesting. I I could see that. They just yeah that that makes sense. I'm gonna have to. All right, let's go. With my gut reaction. I'm gonna take the last one. The uh, the researchers have devised a way to identify terrorists by their stem cells. That one is the big. Okay, Rebecca. Uh, that one, the the stem cells and the terrorism, that sounds absurd, but there's no way in hell that tolls decrease travel time. I don't care what that computer model is doing. There's no way. So I'm going to go with that as fiction. Okay. Bob? Oh, wait. Bob's not here tonight. Oh, crap. <laughs> wait, wait, I'll do Bob. Ready? <laughs> here we go. Here's Bob. Now, we're, we're running long, Jay. We don't have time. It would have been a good bit. Okay. So let's take these in order. First one, new study shows that women with anorexia nervosa actually experience the taste of food differently than normal controls. You all agree that that one is science, and that is science. Uh, It does kind of make sense. So anorexia nervosa is a psychiatric disorder in which um, the the sufferers believe that uh, they are overweight when they're not. So they have a a so-called dysmorphic body image, and they also become obsessed with losing weight. Uh, they will restrict their caloric intake, they'll exercise obsessively, and they just always want to get thinner, thinner, thinner. About 10% of, uh, of people who suffer from this actually die, starve to death as a result of the disorder. Wow, that many? I didn't know that. Yeah, yep, very, very high percentage. It's mostly women, and this study was all in women, which is why I said women. Uh, this is a functional MRI study. The fMRI study has just taken off. It's a wonderful tool. So you can actually look at the brain function in real time. And what they found was, you know, there, there of course, there are centers in the brain that, tell, that give you the experience of pleasure eating certain foods, uh, you know, so-called pleasurable foods. There's a certain positive emotional response to eating certain foods, like sweet things, for example. And they looked at women with anorexia and, and women who do not suffer from that so-called normal controls, e- either consuming something which is sweet or, or just water, something with no taste. And the women with anorexia, in response to the sweet test, had a, had a decreased response in that part of their brain that would normally um, uh, be functioning and, and, and giving the pleasurable emotional reaction to food. So this is consistent with the clinical observation that, uh, individuals, that with individuals with anorexia avoid normally pleasurable food, and they fail to appropriately respond to hunger and other, other cues that should make them eat. So did they only do women for a particular reason? The study was only in women. The study was only in women for whatever reason. Okay. Probably just because it's easier to recruit that and then Rather than having one or two guys in the study, they just did it all in women. Uh, I suspect it was just a because I, I feel like uh, I think I've read some statistics that say that anorexia is a growing problem among men. So I'd be interested to see if it's the same thing with them. Yeah, no, that's correct. And, and whenever that happens, 
it, the the question is: Is it really increasing among men, or are we just or recognizing just being identified it? More. Yeah, is yeah. it just increasingly diagnosed among men? And it's it is, and it's mainly male athletes, especially in those sports where being lean is a, is a competitive advantage. And you know, then that all sorts of questions get raised by that. Is it a subset? Is it the same disorder as anorexia, or is it is, is there a different sort of psychological process going on? Is it more of the competitiveness? Although anorexics tend to be competitive too, so there's a lot of overlap. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. And in this study, you know, the questions that come to mind are: what's the cause and what's the effect? Is there a disorder in this part of the brain that's causing them to be anorexic, or after years of of the anorexic lifestyle and obsessing with losing weight, did they condition themselves to have a negative reaction to caloric food, sweet food? You know, the brain is plastic. It can change in response to conditioning. So, you know, we'll have to um, see further studies to see, you know, to answer these sub-questions that come up. But very interesting. And again, I just, I'm constantly marveling at how wonderful a tool the functional MRI scan is. Number two, a computer model demonstrates how tolls can actually decrease travel time for drivers. Rebecca and Evan, you thought this one was fiction. Jay, you thought this one was science. And this one is science. Oh, come on. It is. Good work, Jay. Yeah, this is interesting. It's one of those ones where you're like, huh, I wonder how that's possible. What What they modeled was using different costs for the toll over different times, so staggering the cost of the, of the toll so that it would be cheaper to go at certain times than at other times. And they can use that in order to persuade people to travel at different times. So the traffic gets spread out and you get fewer traffic jams and, and the traffic time gets reduced for everybody. So people would alter their driving behaviors based on a lower toll rate. That's yes. That's that's that's. I would exactly, doubt that it. That seems. Impl- I don't know about. <clears throat> no, Evan. Yeah, no, I have. A, I have an anecdote for you. I know a guy that actually will drive like fifteen miles to go get gas that's three cents cheaper a gallon mm-hmm. reminds me of a mad magazine i saw they were spoofing the dukes of hazard who drove to california because gas was three cents cheaper per, yeah right per gallon. Yeah. oh so, mad magazine is oh, people will do mad stuff magazine. like that who won't you no, and, and then think of it evan what if it what if it only affects 20 percent of the people there you go that could have a significant effect on uh, traffic jams yeah yeah so this is a dutch researcher dusika joksimovich and uh, he developed a simulation model that helped policymakers to estimate consequences of various toll charges. And so he developed this sort of staggered you know, toll charge model, which significantly reduced travel time. And interesting. So you know, traffic and tolls and whatnot is, is a perfect question for computer models. It's, mm. it, it really it actually works quite well. This, it reminds me of another computer model of, of traffic that showed how, again, very counterintuitive, that adding an additional bridge in the pattern of a city's traffic actually de- increased travel time, the average travel time. Um, so it had an unintended consequence. You would think, oh, there's another bridge. People can spread out their driving over. They have more options. But it actually you know, um, shunted people in such a way that it caused, it caused more traffic jams and increased the average travel time. So... Plus, bridges uh, freeze in cold weather, and you have to go slower over them. So I right, can see right. that happening. Uh, it's interesting. You know, the, the bottom line is that traffic can be very complicated, 
and there could be unintended consequences to doing to manipulating variables in in traffic. Uh, and, but it, but it's a it's a problem that is essentially perfectly suited to computer modeling. So this is a a good tool to, to develop. Cool. Which means that researchers have developed a device that uses stem cells to identify terrorists in crowded place, in crowded public locations such as airports is fiction. Although I did, I. Yeah, I know you're going to say you read the title of the article and didn't read the article because the article <laughs> makes it sound the title, the headline makes it sound exactly like what I just said, but that's not yes. what the study showed, right? <laughs> I so, didn't I don't have time to read whole <laughs> articles this week, okay, Steve? <laughs> so my plan worked perfectly. The 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 headline is new use for stem cells found in war on terrorism. But it's not finding terrorists. It's a device that uses stem cells to sniff for chemical bombs. Well, yeah, and the terrorist who's holding it. No, but it's not. It's not picking <laughs> out the terrorist from a crowd. It's it's just for finding chemical weapons. Yeah, but how else are you going to find a terrorist? Come on, <laughs> non sequitur. George Bush must no, be kind of. You are splitting hairs there because <laughs> oh come on detecting a terrorist as opposed to detecting the what the terrorist is carrying. So you're saying that terrorists are defined by the fact that they have chemical weapons on their person? No, I think by the fact that they are about to do harm to people is how they are defined. So so George Bush must be in a crisis mode right now if with this you know he's against stem cell research but he wants to find terrorists and snuff them out. So that's I mean you're I mean that's there's there's that very poignant irony, and, and I think that's probably what they were going for in the, in the headline. Um, stem cells to fight the war on terror. Hmm. <laughs> that's, uh, that is quite ironic. Uh, I call shenanigans. I think no, no, come on. Oh, People that was and bombs are different things. Question. Rebecca, every time you get beat, it's always the same thing. I got partial credit. I call shenanigans. I can't come. Like, well, that was a poorly worded question. To identify terrorists in a crowded public location is very different than to identify chemical weapons. Okay, Evan. Puzzle time. I understand there's a little tr- little bit of trouble with the, the skeptical puzzle, the new one for this week. It's still well, a work in progress. It is still a work in progress because, as I promised several weeks ago, that I would perform a puzzle in limerick mode for everyone so you're telling and us we're going to get that next week yes you will have the limerick next week so oh, I, awesome. I, I do promise that for you all okay but, but why don't you tell us the answer to last week's puzzle yep well actually i'll reread the puzzle first yes, and then tell that. you the answer a scientist worth ten dollars 64 cents believed he discovered it and he claimed it was faster than hermes but despite poseidon's discovery it could be it could not be found the same way in the end, a scientist worth a dollar twenty-three proved the first scientist was wrong. What was it? And the answer was, in fact, the planet. Well, the fictional planet, Vulcan. Mm-hmm. Now, think back to your history slash slash science classes, um, in which it was thought in the nineteenth century that there was perhaps a planet inside the orbit of Mercury. Mm-hmm. That was ha- that was having an unaccounted for effect on its orbit around the sun, one that they couldn't couldn't uh, calculate using mm-hmm. straight mathematics. And a scientist by the name of French scientist Urbain Le Verrier, back in the 19th century, uh, he was the discoverer of the planet Neptune. 
using mathematics and astronomical observations to um, imply that Neptune had to exist because it was having an effect on Uranus's order, orbit. And it turned out to be correct. So we tried f- using that same approach to explaining the orbit of Mercury. And it, and it, it didn't work. It, it, it was off. Mm-hmm. Until our good friend, Mr. Albert Einstein, came along uh, with his general theory of relativity and uh, plugged in the figures and it explained exactly the orbit of Mercury. And there was no need, more need for the planet Vulcan at that point. But how does the whole ten dollars and sixty four cents? Yeah, that was the so bit forth. I couldn't figure out. What what is yeah. that? Yeah. So and and interesting, you know, someone who this, their first post on the website, uh, Rogue Combine, his first post, he says, "Hi, I'm new," and he says both of those guys, uh, Leverrier and Einstein, appeared on banknotes. Verrier was on the French fifty franc bill, which, if you were to calculate it in today in at least the rate I I calculated last week when I plugged it in, it was worth 50 francs is uh, $10.64. And Einstein's on the Israeli five shekel bill, which is worth $1.23. Very tricksy. Rogue Combine got the uh, dollars and cents part. However, our good friend Kevin from the board uh, was the one who actually guessed Vulcan first. So we'll have a pair of winners uh, this week. Kevin and Rogue Combine together came up with the correct answer. So congratulations to both of them. Good work. Good work. And next week, a limerick just for all of you. I can't wait. I can't wait either. I'm tingling with excitement. It'll be (laughs) limerific. Limtastic. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Jay Fuss, do you have a quote to close out the week for us? I have a quote. I have a quote from someone that's alive. Wow. Which is interesting. Uh, This is a quote from Evelyn Fox Keller, is an American physicist, author, and feminist, and is currently a professor of history and philosophy of science at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. I've heard of that place. She says, to know the history of science is to recognize the mortality of any claim to universal truth. Evelyn Fox Keller. Just think over that one. Thank you, Jay. A very interesting quote. But is it? Did you think about it like I asked you? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Okay, that's all. So this what, chick what? is still alive, so maybe can yeah. we interview her sometime? I, I actually, I, I, you know, while I'm going through quotes and I'm reading a bunch of them, and there's a ton of ones out there, and I usually like to read about who it is if I find one that's interesting. So I did do some reading on her, and she is very interesting. Oh, something to keep in mind. Okay. Well, thank you all again. It's a pleasure as always. Thank you, Doctor. Steve. Good Thanks, show. Steve. Congratulations and welcome, welcome again, back, Rebecca. Yeah, Rebecca. congratulations. It's good Thank stuff, you. girl. One quick announcement for this week: the Skeptics Guide has just started the uh, a Skeptics Guide blog, the Rogues Gallery, the official blog of the Skeptics Guide. This we plan on having a daily entry. We have seven authors contributing to this blog. All of the rogues, of course, Bob, Jay, Evan, Rebecca, myself included, Mike from uh, SGUfans.net, and an old friend of ours, John Blumenfeld, who used to run the Connecticut chapter for the New England Skeptical Society, wants to get back involved with skepticism, is going to take one day a week as well. So we'll have an entry by a different author every day of the week. So give it a look. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. 
The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. Please send us your questions, suggestions, and other feedback. You can use the Contact Us page on our website, or you can send us an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. Theorem is produced by Kinetto and is used with permission. And this